You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Hi, folks. Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. Before I get started, though, I just want to say hi to Matt and Drew and Jeff and Ryan. Hey, I appreciate you guys uh, getting on my webpage and sending me some comments and questions and ideas. So anybody that wants to send me any ideas, I appreciate it. Just go to my webpage and hit on comments and I will be sure to answer you. So today we're going to talk about a guy by the name of Grayson Welch. Now, this guy actually lived to be 90 years old, and I like this story because it's told in his own words. So I'm going to be using this kind of a first-person uh, story. So it starts out in 1847. He says, I crossed the plains with the volunteers from St. Louis, Missouri, going to take part in the war in Mexico. The Comanches were a power on the plains. The battalion I belonged to was attacked while in camp on the Arkansas River. <clears throat> he says, uh, wood was very scarce. It was customary for a number of the most active young men to go out and search for fuel. Well, across the river, we saw five piles of what looked like driftwood. Now, this had been placed by the Indians as a decoy. Well, he says, 30 men started for the wood. Suddenly, about 25 mounted Comanches charged. Using their long, sharp spears, they would ride a man down and spear him. Out of the 30 men they killed and scalped about 20. The Indians took off with the scalps of their comrades uh, uh, dangling from their hands. And it says, it took me several days to get over this. Now, keep in mind, at this point, he's only about 17 years old, just a young kid. Well, he says, after the war with Mexico was over, I remained in that country, uh, studied the Spanish language so as to read and write it and to act as an interpreter. He says, I'd been left an orphan at the age of 12, and I went into the world alone. So kind of a lonely fella. Anyway, in the summer of 1850, he says, I joined a large company being fitted at Santa Fe, New Mexico, to go to California by the old Spanish trail leading to Salt Lake, then Upper California. He said, we were taking uh, 6,000 head of sheep and 13 head of cattle, and the old mountaineers prophesied that we would never get across the Ute country. However, uh, beef and mutton were very scarce at the gold mines in California. So at that time, the Ute Indian nation kind of extended from the settlements of New Mexico to the Utah Valley, so a pretty big area. Now, the youths believed they would recognize one another in the next world by their hair, and if they were scalped, they would be strangers to their own people. So they would run great risk to keep those killed in battle from falling into the hands of the enemy and being scalped. Well, anyway, so here they are. They're uh, along the Dolores River, which is actually in uh, kind of southwestern Colorado. He says, we were surrounded by 500 well-armed Indian warriors. We numbered only about 15. The chief sent us word that his son had died, and he wanted one man as a sacrifice. 
He said if we didn't give up a man, he would declare war and we would all be killed. Well, our captain considered this an insult and sent word to the chief that we had no men to give up voluntarily, but we had plenty to fight with. Well, as they came near, uh, 500 of them uh, armed and on horseback, quite a, quite a sight, wouldn't you think? Anyway, Captain O'Hagan called the chief to come forth and parley, or, you know, talk. So the chief and five of the head men came out after a little while, and the parley began. They started at about two in the afternoon. At last, about dark, they decided on making peace. And 500 Indians came into our camp of 50 men. There was much handshaking and exchanging of beads and paint and tobacco and many other articles. And he goes on, he says, In those days before the white men taught the Indians to lie, their word was sacred. Now, on December 15, 1850, he says, We came in sight of Salt Lake. As we were crossing a high mountain on a narrow trail, the ground gave away under me and my mule, and we fell for almost a quarter of a mile. The mule was killed, and both my legs were broken. Well, the men were all sure that I'd die, so they didn't do much for me. Now, he goes on, he says, My leg bones were sticking through the flesh in several places. But after they were set by two men holding me down and two more pulling my legs back in place, I seemed to get a little stronger. He says, my companions could not carry me with them any longer. However, so they left me with a band of Ute Indians. They were a nomad tribe and they traveled most of the time. He says, I could not ride, so they made me a frame. Now, just stop and think about that, folks. <laughs> Pretty severe fractured legs, and here he is, you know, no anesthesia, no pain medication. Anyway, he says, they were very kind to me, and they doctored me with herbs and Indian medicines. He says, I believe if I had stayed with my original party, I would have died for sure. The Indians were very good doctors. They fed me nothing for weeks on end, and I got support. I was just a skeleton. But I had seen wild animals get hurt and hide for days without food or drink and come out just fine. He says, I think the Indian medicine man knew this. My wounds after a while dried up and got well after they had nothing to feed me on. Uh, anyway, he says, I, after I could hop around a little, the Indians took me into the high mountains. And there white people came to trade with them. The Utes lived in the beautiful mountains in the summer. Then in winter went to the San Pete Valley. Well, in San Pete Valley with some white traders, I saw a band of Indians with two white women captured when they were little girls. They could not speak a word of English. The girls seemed to know that I wanted to talk to them. The oldest was about 25 and had two kids. The other white girl looked only about 16 or 17 years old. They were both very dark uh, from living outside. And he says, I went uh, close to the younger one, and to my surprise, found out that she was absolutely blind. Now, he was told by an old storekeeper that uh, those same Indians came every winter, and an old Indian had told him that the younger girl had tried to escape, and the Indians made her blind so she would not try to escape again. Anyway, he says, I felt so sorry for the girls, so I had an interpreter ask them if they would like to come back and live with the white people. They looked at me so pitifully, and tears came to their eyes, but they said not a word and turned and left with the Indians. Anyway, he says, it left me very sad to see them go back to the high mountains to live forever with the Indians. Now, at this time, the old storekeeper, Mr. Hampton, contracted with me to take a group of people and go down into Mexico. He was interested in putting up some trading posts in that part of the country. 
So he says we started out from San Pete Valley with six men and saddle and pack animals. He said we had one span of pack mules who were determined to go back to Utah. Even when we hobbled them, they would travel 15 or 20 miles in a night. So we tried in a whole bunch of different ways to try to stop them. They used what they call a side hobble. They used one called a cross hobble, but none of that worked. He said, then we tied them to one another's tails. They would circle around and around and a while. They would fill up on grass and just lay down. So kind of a unique method of keeping the keeping them there together. So he says, as we went on to Sonora, Mexico, we met many fine people and everyone helped us. There were many robbers and warlike Indians, but we were lucky and had very little trouble. One night, as we were traveling by moonlight, we sighted a group of warlike Indians. So we hid in a little draw and were very quiet. With us, we had a little Mexican burro that always brayed when he saw something. So here's what they did. He said, we tied a rock on his tail. You see, when a burrow brays, he raises his tail, but with a rock on it, he will not bray. Well, this burrow got so insulted, he didn't bray anymore on the whole trip. Well, one time after traveling all day, we came to a water hole, and one of the men tried to push this dumb uh, animal into the water. He got stubborn and wouldn't drink, so two men just picked him up and threw him in. Well, he just raised his little head and walked out without touching a drop. So an old Mexican with us said, Quote, if you want a little burrow to do something, never tell him. It will only hurt his feelings. So, yeah, I guess he was right. Anyway, from Sonora, we went into uh, Chihuahua. One night, as we were camped in the high, cold mountains, I felt my blanket leaving me. I lay very still for a second, then jumped up and grabbed an Indian. He was cold and returning to his uh, home in town. But it seems he'd lost his blanket. uh, And he says, I got up. We made a big fire. I fed him. The next day we came into his town and the people there welcomed us. Well, he says, we were in the high mountains of Chihuahua when one horse fell and cracked its hoof, splitting it very badly. He said he couldn't even stand. So we couldn't travel without this horse because he was what they called our kitchen horse, the only one that was gentle that could pull a wagon. Anyway, a little Indian came up and told us to burn some cow horns and put it on the hoof and then wrap green rawhide around it snugly and nail it on the horse's shoe. Well, the next morning, he says, we moved out with our kitchen, in other words, the horse, in fine shape. And when we took the rawhide off 600 miles later, he was perfectly well. So you see, folks, there's a lot of uh, Indian medicine, not just for people, but for animals that they learned that worked very well. Now, one time, he says, we were exploring high in the Sierra Madre Mountains, and we ran out of food. We were snowed in. We boiled rawhide and ate it and drank the juice. Now, raw leather has so much glue in it, we had to boil it, then let it set up until it got cold and formed a kind of a gelatin. Then we salted it down and ate it. Now, doesn't that just whet your appetite? He says, we waited for the snow to freeze over so we could travel on, and we had voted not to eat our stock because we knew if we were ever going to get out, we would be on our horses and mules. So, obviously, they could not eat uh, their transportation. He says, I felt so sorry for our horses and mules. They lived on what little bark they could chew off the stunted trees. And he said, we did have one horse that died from cold and exhaustion. And says, we did cut him up and cooked some of the meat, but it gave him dysentery and they were very sick. So that didn't work so good. Anyway, the next night, he says, we were about ready to give up and we saw a light 
turns out it was a village in that high mountain valley we found some Tepache or Tepeche, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, Indians, which is a remnant of the ancient Toltecs. Anyway, they were very friendly. They took us in, they fed us, they gave us ground corn and boiled venison. After resting up a few days and letting our stock get strong again, we brought uh, bought supplies for our homeward trip. We had traveled over 3,000 miles, and I had taken a lot of notes for this Mr. Hampton. We were anxious to get back to Salt Lake before winter set in. Well, February, we said goodbye to our Indian friends and headed our little band of stock homeward. We crossed the state of Sonola and came up the coast route through Mexico, uh, then north toward old Tucson and Arizona territory. We reported back to this Mr. Hampton in Salt Lake. We had traveled over 6,000 miles with the same stock, and they were in fine shape when we arrived home. I like that story because it's told uh, by the same guy, and so it's kind of a first-person story, but pretty fascinating. You think about how tough these guys were. I mean, uh, again, to have two broken legs with uh, sticking out through the skin, and, and the Indian medicine took care of it, healed him up. So that's our story for today, folks. So again, if you ever need to send me some comments, just go to my webpage and uh, send me a comment. And if you like the stories, please share them with your friends uh, and, uh, and family. So until next time, bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.